You're listening to Sincerely Christian, a podcast where we talk about all things Christian. I'm your host, Jacqueline Clemens, and I can't wait to share with you all the things that I've learned about living biblically in a world that is stark raving mad. Christianity is not always easy, but it is so worth it. Welcome to An Autopsy of Untold Grace. In this fifth episode, we're going to discuss unspiritual eyes. When sin has blinded us, it becomes increasingly hard to see the goodness of God. It becomes nearly impossible to discern what is good and what is evil. And it is very difficult to make good choices. Sin is deceptive. Sin is detrimental. Sin distorts everything. My husband and I love watching classic movies. One of our favorite things to do is sit around and talk about who our favorite actors are. What's our favorite Humphrey Bogart movie? What's our favorite Marlon Brando movie? What's our favorite Katherine Hepburn movie? And we go through the list. We try to rank all of the, you know our favorites in every category. When it comes to the category of best acting, the question is, which movie has the best acting? And without question both of us without hesitation say who's afraid of virginia wolf now this movie is disturbing on many levels but the acting in it is so amazing just the dialogue between elizabeth taylor and richard burton will blow you away now this movie like I said, is very dark, very disturbing. It's one of the most disturbing movies. <laughs> well, other than Apocalypse Now, I'm not a huge fan of that movie. But anyway, so Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is a movie that came out in 1966. And it's actually a few years before that, it was a play. But the movie stars Elizabeth Taylor. She plays a character named Martha. And she is married to Richard Burton, who plays a guy named George. Now, their marriage is really shaky. They are really not in a good place. Richard Burton's character, he plays a professor at a college and his wife, Martha, is the daughter of the university's president. Now, they have just returned home. The movie opens, they had just returned home from like some faculty party and Elizabeth Taylor invited over a young couple. It was a new professor on the campus, so she invited him and his wife over and they are Nick and Honey. Nick and Honey think they're just going over for a little bit of fun after a faculty party. They don't realize how dark this night is going to be. Everyone has been drinking and so, you know, spirits are high. Anyway, when they arrive, what they see is that both George and Martha don't really like each other that much. There's a lot of resentment between Martha and George. There's a lot of bitterness that kind of seeps out into the conversation. They're kind of putting each other down in front of this younger couple. And at first, this younger couple, they're kind of a little embarrassed. They don't really know how to react. But as the night wanes on, they both realize that they have been sucked into something that is very deep and dark and unpleasant. As the story unravels, we see that Martha and George are really, you know, they're drinking to kind of medicate this pain that they don't know how to deal with. The night just continues to spiral out of control. It ends with some inappropriate behavior between Nick and Martha. And then also George, he, at one point he goes and he gets a gun and it looks like he's going to shoot. Martha, his wife, but in fact, when he pulls the trigger, out pops an umbrella. But it's all this kind of let's let's see how far we can push each other without actually killing each other. <laughs> 
it ends with the revelation, like the, the audience is clued in to the fact that the source of their sadness, the source of their pain, the reason for their bitterness towards each other and their extreme drinking is because they were infertile. They had not been able to have a child and the inability to deal with the sadness has led to this complete destructive behavior towards each other and towards themselves, because obviously drinking to this degree is very destructive to yourself. And then it's also, you're ruining the relationships that you're trying to build with this new couple. It's a really dark movie, but it is wonderfully acted. It also was originally a play, and I have not seen the play but when I was doing a little research to make sure I had the backstory correct, I discovered some pretty interesting things about the play. The play came out in 1962, and it's a play by Edward Albee. There are three acts, Act 1, Fun and Games, Act 2, Walpurgis Knot, which is the name of an annual witches' meeting, and apparently it's satiric in the context of the play. But I thought that it was interesting, and so when I dug into what the word Walpurgisnacht is, I learned that Walpurgis was actually a saint in the Christian church. Christians prayed to God through the intercession of St. Walpurga in order to protect them from witchcraft, which I bring that up because this episode talks about dabbling into witchcraft just a tiny bit. So it's kind of an interesting connection there. Back to act three and then act three, the exorcism. I just thought it was interesting that the play actually had two of its acts that gave a nod to the occult or to darkness. And then Virginia Woolf, you know, the title of this movie, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, is actually a play on, you know, who's afraid of the big bad wolf combined with Virginia Woolf and Virginia Woolf. So Virginia Woolf, I did a little research on Virginia, and this is what I found. She lived in the late 1800s. She died in 1941. She is considered one of the most important writers of the 20th century. She's an English author. She was born into a wealthy family. She was trained in classics and history. During her training, she was exposed to the early reformers of women's higher education and the women's right movement. Now, what's interesting is in the 1970s, she became sort of this poster child for feminism because of her writings and because of her lifestyle. She began writing in 1900. She got married in 1917. She had several of her works published, but she also had romantic relationships with women. I also discovered that throughout her life, Virginia Woolf was troubled by mental illness. She was institutionalized several times and she attempted suicide at least twice. She finally killed herself by drowning at the age of 59 in 1941. So I point this out because this episode touches on homosexuality and attempted suicide. I bring in the play because the play really highlights the occult. And I thought what was interesting about the whole story, the play, the person, the woman, everything that's surrounding this title also has links to the story that I'm about to tell you. I called chapter five for tarot cards. And the reason I did this is because sin has won endgame. It is leading you towards darkness. It is leading you towards the occult. And at the end of this chapter, I find myself dabbling in the occult. I'm sticking my toe in a place that is forbidden.
the title, the four tarot cards. Now, if you're a Christian, you probably know that we are supposed to stay away from the occult, things like fortune telling, things like horoscopes. And yet, you know, you look around and you see a lot of today's Christians who read and share their horoscopes. And it's just ironic to me that we will dabble, you know, in darkness without being aware of the danger. In Deuteronomy 18 verses 9 through 13, God tells us specifically, these types of things are detestable practices. So let me just read very quickly. It says, let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft or casts spells, or who is a medium or a spiritist or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. I did sit down at the table of a fortune teller. That's why I named it the four tarot cards, because I wanted to foreshadow this chapter with there are some really dark things that are about to come out. All right. So here is the quote I chose for this chapter. It says, your danger is not being on the edge of a precipice, but in being unwatchful there. And this is a quote by Bruce Wilkinson in his book, The Prayer of Jabez. Now I picked this quote because it's just words of wisdom, right? You're standing on the edge of a precipice. You don't see the danger around you and you're not even being watchful. You're not even being careful. And before you know it, you know, you could fall over this cliff and plummet to your death. And that is the state that my life was in um, in this chapter, I was being reckless. I was being unwatchful. Things were just spiraling out of control. All right. So here are the stories I included and why I included them. Let me briefly bring you up to speed if you have not listened to previous episodes. The story starts out with a girl who meets and falls in love with Jesus. Jesus becomes her whole world. She joins a church. She becomes plugged into the singles ministry. And these people are helping her grow in her wisdom and knowledge and love for the Lord. Then along comes a spider and sits down beside her and then leads her astray. Now, the spider's name was Jacob, and Jacob was a staff member at this church. She eventually convinces herself that she's in love with this guy, despite many red flags that come out, despite many of the things that she wouldn't normally be attracted to. She convinces herself that she is in love with him. They get married, and they live miserably ever after. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now that's the very short versions. What happens is because of the unhappiness in her life, in her marriage, she goes on this pursuit of happiness. And in this pursuit of happiness, she starts trading her you know, Christian beliefs, her convictions for things that are going to bring her pleasure and delight. This leads to building relationships outside of the church, includes extramarital affairs. And we talked about that in episode four. So now episode five, chapter five picks up with Grace and Jacob being separated. Now, I don't know if I've mentioned that my character's name is Grace. Now, let me just start by saying everyone in the book has a different name. Now, these are real people in real life. And this is truly my story, but it was so difficult for me to, to be authentic and honest using my own name in the book. So I changed my name to actually its Hebrew meaning. What I go by in real life in Hebrew means grace. So the character's name that I used is Grace. 
The character's name that I use for the husband, Jacob, his name is also found in the Bible. Jacob meant trickster or deceiver. You can deduce, <laughs> you can conclude why I chose the name Jacob, because as we will see in episode five, this guy is a trickster. He did deceive me. Would have saved me a whole lot of grief and pain and turmoil if I had just known his true self initially, but we will get to that. And as a side note, every character in this book I have renamed some of the people are actually two characters in one, but they have like, they serve the same purpose. They basically have the same effect. Some characters are combined. Also, some of the names that I chose do represent personality or character. Like we've already talked about Delilah. Delilah was a type of person who was sent in by the devil to kind of lead someone off track in, in the Bible. She led Samson off track and led him to be a weaker version of himself. Those are the type of people that the devil uses and they are called Delilah. So there is a Delilah. And as these characters come along, I will share with you the meanings. All right. So back to stories I included and why I included them. Chapter five kicks off with a near death experience. I had gone out one night with Ren and we were drinking and making, you know, terrible life choices. And on the way back to the apartment that Ren and I shared, we were in a wreck. The car I had just purchased was, you know, overturned. And in the process of this accident, I discover some things about Run that reveal he is not the guy that I thought that he was. It's in the book. It's just this continuation of me making bad choices. Ren and I decide we're going to go down to Mardi Gras in New Orleans. And again, this is a place that I would never want to go and never want to be if I was walking with the Lord because Mardi Gras is basically sin addicts climax. And if you know the history of Mardi Gras, you know that this used to have Christian roots, that it was tied to Ash Wednesday. And Ash Wednesday is, you know, the first day of Lent. Lent is the season leading up to Easter. And so Mardi Gras had basically become the very last day that you could sin. And then the next day on Ash Wednesday, everybody's going to repent and we're going to, you know, start setting our hearts on the Lord and we're going to walk towards Easter, you know, with these pure hearts. So Mardi Gras is basically sinning. So we decide to go down there and things, they go from bad to worse. A lot of things happen there. And this is just a telling of bad choices that I was making and the fallout from those choices. But then back home, I'm working, I'm living with Ren. My life is very full of anxiety and just the state of unsettledness. I had yet to tell the people in my life that I had separated from Jacob, you know, the people that I worked with. I was afraid to mention to these people because when they met me, when I'm moved into this new department at work, they, they knew that I was a minister's wife. And now I am separated from my minister husband and all the implications that that brings. Because in the Christian worldview, a marriage is supposed to last forever until death do you part. And that was a viewpoint that I held and believed in and wanted very much to happen. Here's a part from the book under the subheading called Stand Still in Chapter 5. The tightrope I walk between reality and portrayed reality is wearing thin. The questions about Jacob and his well-being step into my conscience. How much longer before I can say the words out loud? How much longer before I can stand in the court of my peers and say, Jacob and I are no longer together? I can barely admit it to myself. The ring that has misshaped my finger acts more like a life preserver than a symbol of my commitment to marriage. 
I must take it off. The hypocrisy of my life is held captive in the diamond's glare. Pulling slowly, it comes off, and I tuck it away in a box of broken dreams. My life of unsettledness has become a purgatory that offers no peace. Separation is a constant state of uncertainty and directionlessness, in which one neither goes forward nor backward. It is a place of discontent. The agony of divorce cannot be drowned out, try as I may. Nevertheless, Jacob and I have unfinished business, and we need to face it head on. Most pressing is the deadline to file our income taxes. Taxes and death are life's two certainties, like it or not. So we decide to meet on neutral ground to hammer out the details of dividing the life we once shared. The coffee house is the agreed upon location. Witnesses, beware. All right, so we're sitting there and we are combing through the details of how things are going to be divided. We've come to the end of the purpose of our meeting. So I get up to leave and then he grabs my arm and kind of pulls me back down into my seat. So he tells me that he has been seeing someone and he wants to talk to me about that. So I sit down. It might just be easier to read it. I stand to say goodbye and his hand fastens to my forearm. Gently tugging, I know he wants me to stay a little longer. I sink back into my chair while unease creeps up my spine. Fishing in his back pocket, he lays a photograph face down on the table. I've been seeing someone, he says. This person means a lot to me, and I've wanted to tell you before now, but I could not, he says, and his voice deflates. Okay, I chirp quickly. Well, let me see. I state with insistence, and my mind fills with curiosity. He draws a deep breath, and with a face full of reservation, he pulls the photograph to his chest, flips it face up, and pushes it slowly in my direction. I am leaning forward to study the image. Suddenly, I draw back in blank confusion. Questions choke me, but my mouth opens, wanting answers. My eyes are searching Jacob's eyes when past moments flood my mind, and the careless words that were once spoken now come alive in innuendo anew. Shaking my head, I deeply swallow this revelation. He waits for me to respond, but my breath is too short to speak. Fingers tracing my eyes, gating my tears. I say, how long? I met him in January, Jacob smiles and says. My body is heavy and empty. I cannot process the image of the handsome young guy leaning against the tree, his arms crossed, and that mischievous crooked smile staring at me. No. How long have you, my voice tapers and a breath rises in my chest, I release it slowly, been like this. A giant smile grows over his shiny face and he states, Grace, the only way I know to explain it, he pauses, takes a deep breath and then continues. It was like a cloud in the far off distance and now it is something near and dear to my heart. I sit stunned. Do your parents know? I ask curiously. He says, no one knows but you, Grace. And then the piece of his hidden life falls on me with his confession. And the puzzle is now complete. So with this revelation of Jacob's homosexuality, it explains why our sex life was terrible. It explains why he never needed me or wanted me to touch him when we were in public. And even some of the comments that I had included in earlier chapters, some of the, the fights that we had gotten into, all of those came into full clarity when I saw the picture of this young guy that Jacob had been seeing. It's still very hard for me to talk about because when someone betrays you on that level, you know, your whole world 
shifts. It's like I, my soul was exploded. Like everything that I thought I was standing on collapsed all around me. And, you know, I was swallowed up into this pit of depression and sadness and confusion and, and uncertainty and not understanding how someone could have this deep, dark, hidden secret and just marry someone else. Like it was not going to be a big deal. Like it wasn't going to come up. Like it wasn't going to be a hindrance. Well, the very next thing that happens is, of course, I run to my mother. My mother and I have this conversation. She's like, I told you, you know, he wasn't your type. <laughs> and then my response was, mom, you're right. I guess I did not want to see it. I saw what I only wanted to see. I wanted to see a man who loved God and served God, but I did not expect this. Even when it became clear that he was a different person at home than in public, I never imagined this was his big secret. I just thought he had unresolved anger issues. I did not know he was hiding homosexuality. Anyway, I go on to say he has not told his family and I'm not going to tell his family. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. And uh, then the next part in the book is a, a subheading called Absolved. With my soul decimated, I head back to the unholy union between me, a newly justified adulterer, and Ren Montclair, my only salvation. Jacob's confession sheds light on all the issues we had from the first outrage at the Harrison's house until the grand demise of our less than stellar sex life. With this factored in, I sit in perfect clarity. How could I be so blind? Why would he deceive me? A successful minister needs to have a wife, my mind jeers. I was just filling a needed role in his life. It's so obvious now. Okay, so it was obvious. He didn't really need me as a person. He needed me as a position. And I was just feeling a needed role. Now, I'm not going to put all of the blame of my failed marriage on Jacob. Yes, that betrayal was painful. But what I will sum up and say was I too, when I entered this marriage with Jacob, I had many reservations. I knew something wasn't settled in Jacob. And I too was pursuing this marriage for the wrong reasons. I liked his position in the church. I liked the idea that, you know, I was going to be married to a minister and people were going to look up to us. Those are all very selfish and very wrong reasons to be married. And the consequences you can see were two mismatched people stuck in a marriage where neither of them are happy or satisfied. All right. So the next thing that happens is, so Ren was there to pick up the pieces and to fill the sadness with drugs. And I've taken it out of the book, but I'm going to share it here. So Ren thinks the answer to the lowest point in my life is found in this heart imprinted pink pill resting in the palm of my hand. Just take it. You'll forget all of your problems. Ren promises and swallows its twin. My uncle and his wife take this all the time to spice up their marriage, Ren says, and his voice is sincerely pushy. I have never done ecstasy, Ren. I have never taken a hallucinogenic. I avoided every mind-altering drug like the plague in high school. Why on earth would I take this now, I ask. Still unconvinced I should do this. And I've changed some words. <laughs> I've changed some words in this response. And uh, he, he responds, we will play all night. You can change the word play for whatever you think ecstasy creates in people. So we will play all night, Ren, state, Ren states, and his raw, unfiltered answer speaks to my greatest need. I need to be wanted as I am, a woman. So insistent, he continues, hurry, so hours kick in at the same time. Well, I've got nothing to lose. My hopelessness escapes in my exhale and I swallow. 
So here's that precipice, one of many that I stood on in this chapter, and I fall over face down into sin. When I first wrote Untold Grace, I had included a lot more detail that I've since removed because it was a little too revealing. And I thought that the main readers of this book would be Christian readers. And even what I've experienced to me now personally is so offensive and so dark that I don't like remembering it. But I felt like it was important to point out these things because it speaks to the heart that is lost. Paul says to the Greek, I became Greek, to the Roman, I became Roman through becoming all things that some might be saved. And I'm butchering that verse, but I think what he's speaking to is if you have a way to connect with people who are lost, then you should use that as a means to bring them into the kingdom or to illuminate a path to God's forgiveness that you may not have otherwise. So that's why I had originally included this. I've since taken it out because it makes me very uncomfortable to remember this part of myself. But for the purposes of this podcast and and my attempts to reach an audience of people who can identify with looking to drugs and alcohol as a means to escape, you know, brokenness and pain, or even just the pursuit of fun. I mean, there, you know, there are times where people just pursue drugs and alcohol because they think it's going to bring them the satisfaction. So anyway, long story, I'm going to, to share this now because I believe that it, it may help even the worst of us, even those who make decisions to do drugs, even those who you know, who have committed adultery. God's grace is so deep. In fact, one of my favorite quotes is by a woman named Corey Ten Boom, and it's actually in the book in chapter 12. But um, she says, there is no pit so deep that God's grace is not deeper still. And I have, I know that's true. It is absolutely true. I have wrecked my life. I have made horrible, stupid choices, but God's grace is so good. It's so deep. It covers all of my sin. And it is only because of his grace that we can stand at the foot of the cross. In fact, Martin Luther says that we are all beggars at the foot of the cross. And these are my words. It is only because of God's grace that we're alive, that we, that he didn't wipe us all out, you know, including Noah. (laughs) And he gave us another chance. The subheading was called Nirvana. It's no longer in the book. The word Nirvana just means a transcendent state in which there is neither suffering nor desire nor sense of self. And you're just kind of free from the world. Another definition is it's a state of perfect happiness, an ideal or idyllic place. And that is, you know, what ecstasy does. It brings you into this place initially where you're not feeling anything except for happiness. Here we go, Nirvana. My mind and my body are soaring to places so high and bright and beautiful. My heart is at peace and happiness is all around me. Everything is happy. Everything is beaming and magnificent. I've never felt so alive in my entire life. I feel amazing. Laying on carpet piled three feet high, these strands cradle me like cotton candy pillows and I never want to leave this place. I want to touch everything. My fingers soak up sensation flowing from coarse fabrics, velvet pillows. 
the cool smoothness of the tile floors, the warmth escaping the walls. Everything has a pattern, a sound, a glow. My skin is so soft and supple. My face is perfect. I love everything about me. And there is Wren. He is gorgeous and strong like an apple tree. Among the trees of the forest, I long to taste his sweet fruit. His face stubble screams masculinity and I want it. I want him. It's hot. My clothes are suffocating me like a python. I need them off now. They're gone, dead on the floor. So sad. Why are they so sad? No, wait. They're not sad. They're waiting for me. I put them back on. Oh, they're so very cozy. My hand caresses my sleeves and... My mouth. My mouth is parched. I need a drink. This thirst is intense. My throat is a desert. I need water now. I search and find the kitchen sink. The sound of the water is intense and captivating. Wait. It's deafening. I slow the water. The water is a million tiny bubbles flowing in a sideways stream. And I lap them into my mouth. Their lightness tingles me. I float to the shower. Time has stopped. I stand in a garden-sized tub and turn on the faucet. The water sinks into my skin. I feel clean and pure. I let the water wash over me and I begin to sing the praise song. You are my king, out loud. Flashes of me singing this song on stage come into mine. The memory of being in that holy place and praising my savior is sweet. Then the lyrics get heavy and lay an anchor in my soul. My clothes start freezing and the weight of those words now slash my heart. I start crying and the salty tears cover my body. I sit freezing, arms wrapped around my legs, just waiting for the pain in my heart to pass. I'm not going to finish reading. Um, I, I share that because it is this intertwining of my soul and my spirit. And even though, you know, I take in this drug to erase the memories, the, to erase the pain, my heart still longs to be in God's house, right? I still long to sing praise songs to God. And here I am, you know, under the influence of this very heavy drug and I am still longing to be with God. And so I find myself crying and freezing in this bathroom alone. Now it does shift because, you know, when you're on this drug, it, your emotions change very quickly. But I share it because there's a quote on the back of the book that is true. And it's true for every moment of every day in our lives. The sacred and the secular are more intertwined than we allow ourselves to recognize in our churches and even in ourselves. And that is, it's so true. You know, there's a part of us that is so sacred and holy and made in the image of God. And then there's this part of us that's very worldly and material and, and sinful, that sinful nature. And these things are so intertwined. We have to make a concerted effort to separate and to, and to make sure that, you know, the spirit is in control and the spirit is guiding us and we're growing in our spirit. All right. So after that, I get a phone call while I'm at work from Jacob and his voice is very soft. And I could tell that something's not right. In the divorce, he was going to keep the house. I just wanted everything to be over after his confession. I'm just like, I just want out. So you take the house, you take the front, you take everything and just give me the divorce. I, I wanted it to be done and over with. So anyway, he's at the house and he calls me and he is telling me that how none of this was my fault. He never blamed me for any of this. But I can tell like his voice is fading. I become very concerned. Our house was just a couple minutes from the church in desperation. I asked the pastor to go and check on Jacob because 
because I'm very concerned that he has done something to himself, to harm himself. At the end of it, what we find out was that, yes, Jacob had taken a lot of pills. He was trying to kill himself. He ends up in the hospital, drove to the hospital. I get to the room where Jacob is. He's heavily sedated at this point. And I see one of the guys sitting in the bed next to Jacob. And then their closeness, I just dismiss it because I'm more concerned about Jacob's state of being. You know, he just, he has tried to kill himself. And I'm trying to reconcile in my mind, like, you know, what has brought him to this point? All those details are lined out in the book. But all of that aside, you know, I, I didn't want him to harm himself. I didn't want him to die. And I'm, I'm very concerned about his well-being. He ends up being admitted into a, uh, a hospital that treats suicide attempted patients. He's there for a while. I go visit him one day. And while I'm there, I notice that his mom and stepdad are sitting in the courtyard, you know, and they are looking at me like, this is all my fault. Like if looks could kill, I would have been dead because they were blaming me for Jacob's state. And what they did not realize is you know, it was his own hidden sin that had contributed to all of these things. And I wasn't, I was, they still did not know about his homosexuality and I was not going to tell them. In my life, I learned that Ren is hiding things from me. And so we break up. I end up moving out into my own apartment. It's actually pretty close to work. Start becoming close with a guy that I work with named Alexander. Now, Alexander and I are just completely platonic friends. There is no romantic interest whatsoever, but it's just someone that I can go out with and have a lot of fun with. And I do. Okay, so the chapter ends with uh, Alexander and I. We go to Dallas. Okay, let me just read this. This is actually interesting. All right, so we, we go to Dallas. We are laughing and jubilant, but then I see a figure tucked away in the dark corner of the shop entrance. A sign next to the table displays tarot reading. Having descended this far into blasphemy and drowning out the, the we are not supposed to consort with fortune tellers conviction, I let myself be diverted. This is that precipice again, right? Bad choices. So I let myself be diverted. Seated, I discover the figure is a woman cloaked in a black hood. Her mysterious nature lures me closer. I have never had my fortune told, have you, Alexander? I ask. I do not believe in that stuff. Let's go, he says, somewhat impatiently. Refocusing on the table before me, I watch her divide the cards into small sections over and over. She sets the pile down and motions for me to cut the deck. I oblige, and she picks up the tarot cards and places one card face up, revealing a dark knight with a sword. She continues by placing three more cards face down directly below the revealed card. Her hand hovers over the first of the three cards. She flips it over and it is another dark night. And her voice makes a murmuring sound. She moves to the second card, flips it over and reveals another night. And I sense a silent inquisitiveness coming from the fortune teller. She turns the last card face up and it shows the fourth night. The clairvoyance sifts through my soul. She looks at me in one eye, then the other, and then settles on both of my eyes. Not saying a word, I become alarmed in my spirit. Before she reveals the meaning of the four tarot cards, I set a $20 bill on the table, grab Alexander's hand, and make haste through the darkness. I was terrified. That moment sent shivers up my spine. I knew I was crossing a line that I did not want to cross. And so I fled. I do what I normally do. I just, <laughs> I just take off running.
Warnings I overlooked and missed red flags. I failed to see how quickly things would spiral out of control. And the whole point of this chapter is the emphasis on unspiritual eyes, not being able to see clearly because you have decided to live a sinful lifestyle. Now, sin blinds you, sin distorts everything. And I could see that with every precipice that I stood on in this chapter, I ended up making the wrong decision. I would fall over again and again. It started with the chapter opening of drinking and driving. I fell over. Then it led to, you know, my choice to do drugs with Ren. I made the wrong choice. I fell over. And then it happened again when I saw that fortune teller sitting kind of tucked away on at a shop's entrance along a sidewalk. You know, I could have just kept walking, but I didn't. I stopped. I sat at her table. In this chapter of the book, I know I brought up uh, Jacob's homosexuality confession. I brought up his attempted suicide. Those things are very difficult for me to walk through. I don't want to elaborate on that too much because that's not really my story. Those are his experiences, his choices, and his story. But I will say there again, when you choose to live your life outside of God's design, the consequences are death. The wages of sin is death. Tools for you to avoid the same pitfalls. First, I've already stated, you have to confess your sin. You cannot live with a heart full of sin because all it does is separate you from God and from other people. Um, sin's end game is for you to be completely isolated and alone and to hate God and to hate yourself and to hate everything. God's call on your life is to have you know an abundant life. The Bible says in John 10, 10, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. In that same verse, it also says, the enemy, our enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy. That's his end game. He wants to destroy everything that is good and holy. Sin wants to destroy everything in your life. The second tool, build your life on Jesus, not on people, not on your spouse, not on relationships, not on your job, not anything, only Jesus. Your foundation needs to be Jesus. You need to know God's word. You need to understand his design for living, for life, for relationships. God has to be the foundation of everything that you do in your life. The third thing, turn to God and God's people to help you deal with pain in your life. At some point, you will experience disappointment. You will experience betrayal heartache, perhaps even infertility like Martha and George. But what you want to make sure is you don't want to turn to these these substances to numb out the pain. They sound you know, very alluring, like it's going to make you forget all of your problems. But in reality, it's just adding to your problems. You know, you'll end up being addicted or uh, never really able to face and process the pain in a way that is healthy and lasting. Turn to God to help you through these difficult times in your life. Turn to God's people to help you see things from, you know, a godly perspective. Drugs and alcohol are only going to make things worse. Just like for George and Martha, the alcohol, it sent them into a state of hysteria, a state of mental illness. So you need to learn how to process any painful experiences in your life in a healthy way, and it can be done. Okay, if you trade your biblical convictions for things you think will bring you happiness, you are stepping outside of God's design. And anything, anything outside of God's design leads to death. Sin is death. Darkness is death. Drugs lead to death. Alcohol is a slow walk towards death. The occult leads to death. Stay away from death. Stay away from sin. Choose life. Life 
is found in God. God is the source of all life. Choose life so that you may live and that you may live an abundant life. Application. These are the questions you can ask yourself to help you be ready for any unexpected challenges that arise in the future. Question one, what steps can I take to ensure every part of my life is built on Jesus? Question two, who are the godly people in my life that I seek for counsel when unexpected pain or loss surfaces in my life? Question three, how am I deepening my relationship with Jesus and growing in his word so that I can better handle life's storms? Okay, and so here's the conclusion for this very difficult story to tell. Now, these things are very hard for me to talk about. I don't like remembering them. I don't like remembering who I was. But it has been revealed to me that it is important to be authentic and as open as I can be because the world around me is full of people who are dying in their sins. You know, they are condemned to death because they have not repented. They have not given their lives to Christ and they don't know how. Maybe, you know, they feel like they're not good enough to be saved, but the Bible tells us that we have all sinned and we have all fallen short of the glory of God, but the gift of God is eternal life. You know, I've heard many Christians give their testimonies at churches and it's always sort of this vague rendition of, well, you know, I was lost, but now I'm found or I was bad and now I'm good or there's no depth to the story. There's no emotion to the story. It's just sort of like I was this way and now I'm that. And and that's fine, right? I, I realize people have different levels of vulnerability that they're willing to share. But I think sometimes too, we don't admit these terrible sins because we're afraid that by doing so, we are somehow disqualified from God's kingdom and from his grace. But we fail to realize that it's only by his grace that we are saved. No one is good enough. No one is perfect. Grace is the qualification. So no matter your backstory, no matter what sin you have committed, it's not a disqualifier because grace is the qualification. Okay, so just to remind you, sin is deceptive. It tries to trick us into thinking that the way of sin is much better than anything that God has planned for us. When Let's just be real. That's just impossible, right? God's ways, there's nothing superior to God's ways. God's designs are superior to anything that we could think or conceive, twist or warp into our own image. It's never going to satisfy us. Sin will never satisfy us. Sin is detrimental. You start dabbling into sin and before you know it, you're you're sitting in you know, a room that's full of broken glass and empty wine bottles and empty liquor bottles and it's just a sad sad place to be also sin distorts everything it distorts you know our perception of god it distorts what we think is good and what we think is evil but let's not forget sin's end game is death sin is destructive sin is deadly the wages of sin is death so next steps if you are interested in joining me on this journey through Untold Grace, I would love to have you subscribe to this podcast. Also, tell your friends about it. If you'd like more information about me, you can find a link to my website in the show notes. Also, if you would like to read the book, you can order that from Amazon.com or at BarnesandNoble.com.